0: Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals, Season 1. This is Episode 1, which is really the second episode, but it's the first official uh, deep dive into the novel Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner. So uh, we discussed a lot of just the the overarching um, ideas, pictures, characters, uh, why we chose this particular book, uh, but today we're going to be looking into really the, the, the first question that the novel raises, which I think is, well, I mean, if you want to skip ahead of the title, which, yes, we're going to do an episode about the title, uh, but from the first sentence of the novel, which I'll read, From a little after two o'clock until almost sundown of the long, still, hot, weary, dead September afternoon, they sat in what Miss Coldfield still called the office because her father had called it that. A dim, hot, airless room with the blinds all closed and fastened for 43 summers because when she was a girl, someone had believed that light and moving air carried heat and that dark was always cooler in which, as the sun shone fuller and fuller on that side of the house, became latticed with yellow slashes full of dust motes, which Quentin thought of as being flecks of of the old, dead, dried paint itself blown inward from the scaling blinds as wind might have blown them. Period. So uh, that's a long first sentence, and... In the first sentence, we get introduced to, uh, as I mentioned on the on the zero episode, Quentin Compson, who is one of the protagonists of the of the sound of the fury. Um, and so Miss Coldfield, who is Miss Coldfield? Well, it's Rosa Coldfield. So, um, you know, that's the short answer. <laughs> who is who's, who is Miss Coldfield? Rosa Coldfield. There you go. That's all you need to know. Uh, but anyways, this episode, we're going to really dive deep into. Oh, we're just going to analyze in every possible way we can. Who is Rosa Coldfield? Why is she the first character we, we interact with? Why is she narrating so much of this story? Why is she so central to the story when she's the 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 sister in law of what what Faulkner himself called the protagonist? She's twenty I think she's like twenty three years younger now. Getting my math wrong. Anyway, she's significantly younger than Thomas Sutpen. I think she's almost 40 years younger than he is. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. Uh, So uh, Whitney and I today are going to be talking about Rosa Coldfield. Why is she such a central focus of the novel? Why is she so important to the novel? Um, Why did Faulkner pick her to be the first character that Quentin interacts with? Uh, so those are just a few of the things we're going to talk about today, um, and then uh, we're also going to be referencing, because just like I said on the, on the Zero episode, we're still students of literature, even though we teach literature uh, as a profession, uh, and as such, we have done some literary criticism reading. So a couple of the articles we're going to reference are Ghost-Written, Kinship and History in Absalom, Absalom by Jessica Hurley from the Faulkner Journal. A Literary Motherhood, Rosa Coldfield's Design in Absalom, Absalom by Erica Plouffe Lazure from East Carolina University. I I can't remember where I got this from, but anyways, got it from Galileo. And finally, Endure and Then Endure, Rosa Coldfield's Search for a Role in William Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom by Olivia Carr Edenfield, which is from the Southern Literary Journal. So got all those three from uh, a Galileo search. So those of you that have been my students, see, I still use library research uh, skills as well. So um, they're valuable. I love them. I'm glad that I get to teach them. So um, without further ado, Whitney, ch- chime in with us and, and just start us on the discussion of, of Rosa Colfield.
1: Um, Well, I guess I could start just quickly with that first impression that you just read to us that first sentence um, where you immediately get the sense that she is just kind of trapped in that house and stifled in that house and that she is trapped there by choice to some degree and that she is trapped there because, and uncomfortably so, because a long time ago a tradition was established that she should be, and so she's staying there. Um, which I think hints at some things about her, um, certainly she's stuck in the past and obsessing over the past, but, um, I think also she's got this preoccupation with the respectability of her and her family Mm -hmm. and the fact that Thomas Sutpin really violated that and that he could never attain to the kind of respectability that she and her family had inherently. And so, you know, she's trying to stick with her family traditions that someone told her when she was a child that she should sit in a dark room and close everything up and then it'll, you know, be cooler. So I think right off the bat, you know, you get some some interesting strong impressions of her and I think that, you know, to some degree, maybe why she hates something so much and the force of that hatred comes out really quickly, like on page one, um, you start getting a feel for it. But the reason why she despises and demonizes something so much is partly, I think, because... She doesn't want the respectability of, you know, her way of life and herself as a representative of that way of life. She doesn't want it to be violated by somebody who's kind of a hillbilly, like Sutpen and kind of an upstart. Um, and also by the, the black people who he sort of brings into her sister Ellen's family by having these illegitimate children, and taints and corrupts it from her perspective. So there's some initial thoughts.
0: So Whitney brings up a huge word for Rosa Coldfield, which is, uh, she said demonized, but that's, I mean, Rosa Coldfield literally calls Thomas Upton a demon. Um, and I think that that's something, you know, as we think about Rosa Coldfield and, and her importance to the story, well, she is the eyewitness. She is the only surviving um, Well, (laughs) spoiler alert, not the only surviving. She is one of the only surviving eyewitnesses of really the entire Thomas Sutpin story. Now, is that story a history? Is that story a tragedy? Is that story uh, a farce? (laughs) Um, Well, it depends on what narrator is telling the story, and that's why we talked about the narrators in the Zero episode uh, Ro- Rosa is one narrator. So is Jason Compson, which is Quentin's father, and then so is Quentin, and so is Shreve McCannon, who is uh, Quentin's college roommate at at Harvard, who's Canadian. And so, uh, Rosa is by far, I think, the most authoritative narrator in that she has the most eyewitness accounts, and the yeah, you know, she was there. She was literally a witness to history, a participant in this history. She actually almost marries Thomas Sutpen, um, late in his life. Um, but as far as Rosa Coldfield, you know, she, she is so emphatic. I mean, I think that's just the very first word that comes to mind is emphatic. She is completely sincere. She's completely, uh, urgent. Um, and and it does come across that she is not just telling this story to Quentin so that he can know it. She actually is telling him the story so that when she asks him to go with her to Sutpen's hundred and to the house and see that there's, there's something hidden in that house. Well, you know, he's going to be more compelled by either curiosity or duty or, um, boredom <laughs> or, or or just you know, um I guess kind of the intrigue of, of getting to tell the story to someone else, um, although I don't think he has any <laughs> I don't think he has any problem uh with with the stories he already has. Um he, he seems to be as I put r- wrote in my notes late in the novel, he seems to be drowning in history. Uh and, and Rosa Colefield's just about to open up a, a water cannon. Uh, and just fire hydrant him with with her story, and he's just going to keep saying, yes, him, yes, him. Whitney, talk to us about uh, just y- your, I guess, let's start with the way she narrates, and then we'll get into the, the content of what she's narrating, and w- why is she so indignant? Why is she so... Um, why why is she so just uh merciless with with the name Thomas Sutpin and, and the story um a, as you alluded to that 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 really pulled her family into the whirlpool or the the undertow that that is the Thomas Sutpin experience?
1: Well, um one thing from the beginning of the book that was um interesting was that she keeps calling him an ogre yes. and saying that his children are half ogre, half like half ogre, half coalfield, I guess. Um I think she turns the story of what happened to her sister into a fairy tale. Um one of these fairy tales where there's like a demon lover or a bluebeard, you know, like this evil man who takes this innocent young woman out into an isolated place and corrupts her, or or kills her, or you know, foists demon children on her, or whatever. Um, and her whole family is the victim of that, I guess, in her mind. Um, and so, in that sense, she's mythologized her sister and her sister's kids and Setpen um, to the point where they're they're much larger than the real world around her and loom larger in her imagination and um then she I think she's very hard on herself she she refuses to completely defend herself for giving into the ogre you know like if you know from the time you're a little child she claims to know from the time she's like five years old like she's like I have all this insight into my sister and you know, the demon pen and everything. She she claims all this, this insight because she's like an eavesdropper and kind of a voyeur kid. But I think she's probably just retroactively putting that those impressions in her own mind. Like she later came to think about her sister and Thomas that way. So she's thinking, oh yeah, I always knew this all along from the time I was three or four or five and was first seeing them. But yeah, I think that she... know it's defensive of her family and kind of defensive of herself because she she got lured in you know just like her sister and that would make her seem like a real fool or, or very desperate right like she she's aware that the people who live in Jefferson kind of think of her as this pathetic old Spencer who couldn't keep the man and why would you even want that old dried up man who you know basically didn't have his wealth left and he'd been your sister's husband. It seems pathetic and desperate and that mm-hmm. she couldn't even keep him. But then, sorry, one more thing. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, and then another, I'm just thinking about the reasons she's mm-hmm. so angry at him. Another, I think, wrinkle in it is that he insulted her massively. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: what, is, what is the insult that he uh, lays upon her and that really is her, uh, I guess, her, her chip on her shoulder the rest of her life?
1: Well, I take it like this, I guess, that she had deigned in a certain way to, like, be willing to marry this man who she had a lot of contempt for. I mean, she'd seen him do things like fight his slaves in this kind of, this way she considered really base and, and like, low and unrespectable. She knew he kind of came out of nowhere and was nobody. And so she she had this kind of disdain for him and even just, like, terror of him and fear of him but then she was willing to marry him because she kind of couldn't find the strength to say no. She actually says when he basically comes in the door and is like, I think we'll get married and just sort of like assumes that, that she's going to be on board. She has this really like striking thing that she says, um, let me flip over to it. She says there's a little space where she, a little niche where she could have said no. And she says, um, what she could have done is with some blind desperate female weapon made a frenzied slash made a gaping wound of no and no and help and save me but she didn't do that she acquiesced and then like a couple months later without ever having like really brought up getting married again he just says hey why don't we try to have a son and if it works then i'll marry you and if not no harm, no foul, because he wants a son, and he's like not totally sure this is going to be the, the avenue that's going to get him a son. Mm-hmm. So you can see why. You know she thinks of herself as a woman who's above being spoken to that way. I think it's an important part of her self conception, and um, is deeply insulting and wounding mm-hmm. to her.
0: Yeah, he pulls a uh, if I can borrow from the show Cheers, a Sam Malone. I'm going to paraphrase. Oh, what the heck? Will you marry me? <laughs> cliffhanger um, and um, the thing about it is he he doesn't even do it that poorly he does it more poorly than that he, like what he said he just kind of offhandedly says well we could get married and Rosa sure enough wears her, her dead sister's wedding ring so Ellen her sister is considerably older I think she's 22 years older uh, anyways, Ellen is ten years younger than Sutpen, and she dies in 1863. So she dies in the middle of um, of, of the Civil War, and uh, int- interestingly, which we'll, we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, she lives almost 43 years. Um, Rosa Colfield goes from uh, s- you know spurning uh, Sutpen's Uh, proposition of if we have a son I'll marry you Um, from then until the time she's talking to Quentin is 43 years and that's something that's hit again and again and again and again now I know that William Faulkner was the kind of person who couldn't (laughs) he couldn't remember Shreve McKenzie's last name was McKenzie so he just called him Shreve McCannon, but um the, the thing about it is, I think Faulkner is incredibly intentional and precise with his name choices and his date choices while he's writing a work, but in between the time of The Sound of the Fury and Absalom Absalom, I think he just lost a few of the details and and, and just picked up and, and it was like, well, that's fine. Um, like, uh, Quentin keeps saying he's 20, but it says he he dies when he's 19, and it's... I think he's thinking of himself of twenty as twenty ish, since he's going to college, and you're in, you know, you, you start your twenties in your college years. But uh, Ellen has died, and and Sutpen comes back. This is Colonel Thomas Sutpen, by the way, uh, who's been a colonel in the the Mississippi, you know, army for the Civil War with the, with the Confederacy, and he comes back. He did not die. Uh, which Rosa was very convinced that every other person in the army would die before he did because he was just such a, such a demon that you couldn't kill him. He was kind of like the Grindel or the Grindel's mother of the Confederacy, if that's you know a fair parallel to the Beowulf narrative. Um, but in terms of uh, just Rosa's antipathy for for Sutpen, it, it's just amazing how quickly it comes across, and how deeply it, it it penetrates the novel, and how, I mean, it's really the whole novel. The whole novel is her settling a grudge against Thomas Sutpen or taking revenge against Thomas Sutpen. And um, one of the things that Whitney mentioned, which is, you know, Rosa describes this entire situation almost like a fairy tale that turned into a, 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 a nightmare um, fairy tale, or whatever you would call that, a, a cautionary tale. Um, but it's got this mythic sense, and Rosa has her own mythologies that she pulls from. Like, I think she's she's kind of dipping her little toe into a biblical story, which the, the Bible's not myth, but I, I bring it up to say the Bible is a a rich vehicle for metaphor, you know, for understanding people in your own life. Uh, and so she she thinks of Thomas Upton as a demon. So this is someone... That is not a human. It's a, it's one of Satan's minions that rebelled against God. You know that's that's how she thinks he is. And I mean, I think realistically he is a human being. I think, but um, she's so convincing that that not only does Quentin absorb this, but Shreve, as he describes Sutpen, he always calls him the devil or, or demon. He calls him one or one or both of those again and again and again because. Rosa has just beat this into Quentin's brain and he's told it already to Shreve. And so now that they're retelling it and trying to find, you know, it's, it's that they've, Quentin has told them, has told Shreve most of the story and they kind of complete the story is, is how the, the, the novel plays out. But that sense of mythology, uh, Rosa uses a few references to Greek mythology and she also uses several references to Arthurian legend. And so it's interesting that she's referencing these different things, uh, but she really never references Shakespeare. So there are elements of of like the literary canon of, you know, of all time that she's deeply versed in and she uses to help herself understand the people in her own life. But then there are other things that she leaves out and someone like Shreve or or Jason Compson will use uh, to understand the, the situation. And so we'll, we'll talk about those more in another episode, but I think that's worth pointing out is that here's Rosa who, who really does elevate her story to something beyond just a personal history. And I think that's, that's part of what this, this novel is doing is it's trying to make the story of Thomas Sutpen and everyone who he affected, even down a hundred years later to Quentin Compson into something that is grand and, and, um, you know, epic, and that is not just something that's personal and private and small. Um, And so, Rosa does that, and I think that's that's one of the reasons why she's the first central narrator is she starts the whole novel off with such a poetic drive. Now, she tells Quentin early on that because he's going to Harvard, that this, you know, this will be Something maybe he can do. Now I'm gonna. It's gonna take me a minute to find it. She basically says, "Here we go." So maybe you will enter the literary profession as so many southern gentlemen and gentlewomen too are doing now, and maybe someday you will remember this and write about it. You will be married then, and I expect, and perhaps by, by married then, be married then. I expect, and perhaps your wife will want a new gown or a new chair for the house, and you can write this and submit it to the magazines. The thing about Rosa Caulfield is she's an amazing persuader, okay? I'm just going to read that one more time. So maybe you will enter the literary profession, as so many Southern gentlemen and gentlewomen, too, are doing now, and maybe someday you will remember this and write about it. You will be married then, I expect, and perhaps your wife will want a new gown or a new chair for the house, and you can write this and submit it to the magazines. So, A, she's made Quentin think way past the sale. Okay, so she, she's made him think, okay if I listen to this, I can write this down and send it to a magazine and pay for a new dress to make my wife happy. Well, Quentin's not married here. You know, (laughs) he hasn't even started college yet, but she's making him think about the future, which is very interesting because she never thinks about the future. She only thinks about the past. She doesn't even think about the present. And so, she's making Quentin think forward and think about being married and your wife's going to want things like a new chair or a dress. And I can attest Whitney likes dresses and she likes, well, we have all the furniture we need for the house right now. But, um, you know, the thing about homes is you always want them to be comfortable and, and, and exciting to be in and, and, uh, welcoming to, to people that are coming in to visit. And so, Here's Rosa making Quentin think about these things, which she's, she's never bought a new dress. She's probably wearing the same dress she was wearing in 1866 when when Sutpen t- asked her if, if she would, you know, have a baby with him and then he'd marry her if it's a boy. Yeah, and the
1: black dress she's wearing is like turning green. It's so old, <laughs> I think it says.
0: And it's obviously old-fashioned. And so, you know, here's a woman who has never bought a new dress for, for 43 years probably and... Is is living in the same house with the same kind of thinking about the air is is cooler if you if you keep the blinds closed is that basically the sentiment of the opening sentence?
1: Yeah, you like close up the house to make it cooler, but really it makes it stuffier. Exactly in reality, but I feel I feel like the part you just read to me it felt pretty disingenuous. Like she is tempting him to keep listening to the story, yes, yes. Um, and maybe misunderstand. Standing or underestimating Quentin's temperament, which already it seems like he has a tendency to be obsessive anyway, and so yes, once you peek, and he says that living in Jefferson, he's been breathing in this story his whole life, like kind of through the dust in the air. You know, there's just there's a sense throughout the book, and dust is in the first sentence. There's dust motes in the air, but that the people who died in Jefferson, they're slowly decomposing and making their way through the air. And there's actually a a part in Rose's italicized section in the middle that says that the spirit metabolizes like the body. So like your spirit slowly decomposes and it's still in the air, the place where you you inhabited. Mm -hmm. So therefore you, you you know, you haunt the places that you're from. And Quentin already feels haunted by this story. Um, And so therefore once she exacerbates that kind of tendency toward obsession he already has. There's a part, also in the italicized section, there's this big italicized section in the middle of the, basically in the middle of the book, I would say. basically all of Chapter
0: 5, almost all of Chapter 5.
1: That's Rosa's point of view, and it kind of feels like maybe it's like her stream of consciousness or something. Mm -hmm. It's not like something she's speaking out loud. But, um, But she's to some degree is supposed to be sort of speaking this to Quentin. But it says that she's going to bequeath you only that same aghast and outraged unbelief I knew when I comprehended what he meant. So she's saying, you know, when I understood the horrifying thing that Sutpin was proposing to me, I was aghast. I was outraged. I want to bequeath to you my outrage. And I wrote, thanks for that at the top of the page because I just was just getting into Quentin's <laughs> head a little bit. Like, oh, great. Um, I'm not bequeathing you an opportunity to get a new chair for your wife one day. I'm bequeathing you my outrage. Mm-hmm. I'm, and my aghastness, which is interesting because Crows yes. is described as being amazed at what she's saying in the first chapter several times. It's like she's amazed at something that she's been obsessing over for 43 years. She's never yeah. lost the sense of shock. Yeah. That this could have happened to her.
0: Yeah, it's like she hasn't even started the first stage of uh, of the five stages of grief, and so she's never she's certainly never going to get to acceptance. Um, but she's 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 giving uh, Quentin, you know, denial and bargaining and anger and, and uh, depression and certainly depression hit very heavily. Um, just put pressing upon him this story. Um, and, and the reason we're talking about Quentin so much is he's, he is the listener. I mean, he is playing the same role we are, which is listening to this old lady talk about her past, and it says she had never said 100 words to him. He knew who she was because it's a small town, but he said he had never heard up, you know, he would maybe spoken 100 words to her in his life in 20 years, and then all of a sudden she's like, hey, can you come to my house? And he's like, Okay. And then she just fire hoses him with this, and and that's part of uh, the role that she had had from basically the Civil War to the present, in her in her own mind maybe was that she was the town poetess. She was this um, this woman that just wrote these odes and ballads for the dead uh, Civil War soldiers for the Confederacy, and and I think. You know, when you think about Rosa Coldfield, she is born in ni- 1845, and so she is, you know, hitting her kind of debutante, like, you know, the, the bell of de ball moments when every boy her age, every possible suitor she could ever have is getting killed in the Civil War. And the ones that aren't are coming back maimed or they're coming back with PTSD or they're coming back um, with some sort of, like, i got to get out of the South, you know. Or with no more money. Or with no more money. And and so th- this idea of well, why is she so angry, well, she, in some ways I think she is embodying the, the anger of that entire generation of Southern women. So, you know, you may say, well, you know, they were right to, to, to get that. They got what was coming to them. And, and to some degree that's true, but when they were born in the 1840s, slavery had already been, you know, existing in America for 200 years. And so it wasn't like they chose to be born into um, a a landed gentry where the work is done by chattel slaves. Um, But but that being said, she grows up with the expectation that things are going to go a certain way, and then life is just changed in an instant because of the Civil War. And so... I think that that's important to remember about you know reading this novel is this is a novel about the Civil War. It doesn't talk a lot about battles in the Civil War, but it's about people who fought the Civil War, people who lived through the Civil War. Her dad, Good Hugh Coldfield, actually was a conscientious objector on religious grounds, and he nailed himself into his attic, and she would feed him. And so there was this kind of like like, he was like a, you know, Anne Frank or somebody. Like, he's, you know, he's hiding out from punishment uh, by the, the Confederacy. Um, and here's Rosa dutifully being the daughter that feeds him. And by the way, Rosa's mother died in childbirth with her. So she never had a mother figure. And her aunt was the closest thing to it. And her aunt was very much kind of that same righteous indignation or self-righteous indignation, maybe uh, spirit, but then she just vanishes in the night because she elopes with a, with a man. And, and so Rosa had, you know, a female, um, an adult female that was, you know, a close relative making an impression on her, but it certainly wasn't a mother figure. And, and then she just, uh, you know, absconds with, with a, a man, and that's that. And so Rosa is, is the one that uh, keeps her father alive until he ultimately t- decides to starve himself. And she keeps um, uh, Judith, her her niece, alive, which is T- Upen's daughter, and um, and you know she she keeps. I guess she helps keep Upen alive for a little while 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 they're quote unquote engaged, uh, and then she keeps herself alive. But but really, what is keeping her alive is this indignation she feels for the 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 insult that Thomas Sutpin would would deign to marry her if she would just have sex with him and, and bear him a, a a male heir
1: and she even says that she and Judith and Clyde so Judith and Clyde are Sutpen's daughters one his legitimate daughter and one his le- illegitimate daughter that he's you know had with this slave that he owns but Rosa says "So she, Judith, and Clyde are living at the house while the war is going on, and they are just living this really hard, scrabble existence Mm -hmm. and working hard just to survive and kind of keep things. Like they they keep Thomas Sutpen's study kind of ready for him so that Mm -hmm. some parts of the house they've closed up because they can't keep them up, but they keep his room ready for him to come back. Because she says explicitly, they are keeping his dream alive for him. They know that he'll want to come back and continue with his design, even though he's kind of an older man by now. I think he's like fifty nine years old or something. Right. That he wants to, he'll want to rebuild everything he's lost. And so it says, um, this if Adam, if you want it, it's page one thirty one. Okay. But um, she says that she, Judith, and Clyde were a triumvirate mother woman, which. Made, fed, clothed, and warmed the static shell, and so gave vent and scope to the fierce vain illusion that Thomas held. Wow. They kept, I thought of it like a womb, because she's calling me like a a triumvirate mother. They kept that house a nurturing place that could still sustain life Mm -hmm. so that when he came back, the dream could stay alive. They're nurturing his dream, and she's jumped in and become complicit in that. And then she gets made, like, a conditional part of the family after all that hard work yes. and dedication to being, like, a surrogate mother to Judith and all of that. And she even swallows having to accept Clyde mm-hmm. into the triumvirate, even though that's a hard pill for her to swallow because Clyde's half black. And then she gets treated like she's a concubine or something. Mm-hmm. or You know, so you can see why after all those years put in, to, even though she hates the guy, basically, like, furthering his dream and his design for his life, that she gets treated like she's one of the slave women who Mm -hmm. he just wants to, like, impregnate, but not raise to a respectable position.
0: Yeah. Now, it's amazing to think about just how many complexities are going on with the South, you know, in terms of You've got um, the the Thomas Sutpin lineage, which we'll get to in a different episode, that starts in Western Virginia, uh, but it, it really includes the first, you know, the first colony, Virginia, right? 1607. Maybe I'm misremembering. I know that I know that there was once a settlement in in North Carolina before that, or maybe it was Virginia as well. But anyways. Um, there's this element of the old, old South. And then there's this element of the Native American South, which is whom he buys the the land from. So, um, so Thomas Sutton buys his hundred miles. By the way, I was looking into, um, you know, square mileage of areas. Uh, Augusta, Georgia is approximately 307 square miles. So, just Thomas Upin's property was about a third the size of the entire city that we live in. Um, that's enormous. <laughs> so, so just think, there's one huge house, and then there's just farmland in every direction for as far as I can see. And so there's this element of there's a Native American South, and there's um, an English settling South, and then there are the people that came from other parts of uh, the United Kingdom and Ireland, so you have Ireland, Irish, Scottish, Welsh, and of course English. Um, and, and and Rosa Coldfield's family is from Tennessee, oh, same same as me. Um, but but part of her story is that sh- she can point backward a couple of generations, which by the, by the way, a couple of generations back from her are, are people that are the first generation of of American citizens. You know. Uh, the British colonies before that. And so this sense of they can point to who they are. And then you've got, like when he was saying this, this um, mixing of races where you have Clytemnestra, who's the house slave, but is Sutpen's daughter. And, you know, Rosa just has this deep antipathy toward her because she is, you know, Rose has been been raised to believe that white people are superior to black people. That's why black people are slaves. Like that. That is the the basically, if you had to boil down the the reason that that African Americans were enslaved in in the Southern states and you know, other parts of of the world before it was illegal you know, made illegal was was racism. Was this sense of there was a supremacy of white skin over black skin, and so. Rosa has that very deeply in, entrenched in her DNA, and not only does she have it in her personal DNA, but it's in the it's in the cumulative DNA, not just of the white society, but of also the black society in in 1840 through 1860, um, you know, Mississippi. But she has to abandon that sentiment and of course the south does as well and and here we are in 2020 and I, and i think that it will probably take the, till the till the end of time i i don't know when there will be a day where there will be truly a sense of you know whites and blacks feel equal to each other like sometimes you know there may be some ebbs and flows as we progress as a society but i i really think that rosa is indicative of trying to just click, change something. And, you know, her, her attitude towards Sutpen is not, you know, she's not angry at him because he has, um, a, you know, a half-black daughter. She's angry at him because he had the presumption to think that he would just get to have sex with her without marrying her first, and so there's this element of she's raised Methodist, she's got this Christian morality uh, driving her, but, you know, I think anybody that reads the novel would be like, I don't know, she does not seem very Christ-like to me because she is the the best grudge holder maybe in all of literature, Um, but she is just so powerful in her antipathy toward uh not just Thomas Sutpin but but Clytemnestra the the uh, half-black daughter which by the way Clytemnestra was supposed to be named Cassandra uh but Thomas Sutpin, much like the author that created him mixed up the name
1: That's what Jason Compson says do you believe it? That Jason Compson says I think that he wanted to name her Cassandra and named her, <laughs> claimed Nestor instead. I don't, I just, I don't know if I trust him or not. Because, uh, you know, um, Rosa's called Cassandra in an early well, chapter as And well. that's
0: that's why I bring it up. Because I think if you want to say Cassandra, the the Greek, you know, in the Greek myth, uh, can see the future, but every time she tells people, they don't believe her. And so I think that that's a very accurate thing to, to, to compare her to in this novel is that even though she's telling this story about the past, it's like she's trying to communicate something about the past that if you don't learn from it, you will be doomed to repeat it or be doomed to never escape it um, and and so there's this element of if Quentin really listens to her, maybe there will be uh, some 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 exit or some some freedom from. Uh, just the oppressive past that that the the South is 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 dealing with in in 1910 certainly um, to a lesser degree now, but but certainly in 1910 you're still dealing with all of the repercussions of the Civil War because a lot of the people that are the elder statesmen of the area either fought in the Civil War or are the children of the people that fought in the Civil War or are like Rosa who were not old enough you know she was like 15 when the, when the civil war started, but she's old enough to have known a lot of people that died in the war. And so she's got this kind of, in some ways she's permanently stuck in a civil war wartime mentality, the same way that people born in the depression, um, have always had that sense of my grandma was born in the great depression. She, she's always been very thrifty because there's just this sense of the, the banks could close. And, and so, um, <coughs> Excuse me. Rosa has that same that same <coughs> kind of constantly in in the war mindset.
1: Well let me chime in while you <coughs> drink some water or something. <laughs> um just this idea of her being an in the war mindset and her not her not being able to see um even like really there should be a change in terms of um the the harsh barrier between like black and white and slave and free i actually think what's kind of interesting and cool about rosa as the book goes on is that she she does moderate and and change her perspective a lot i think you do to some degree see the perspective of a young girl and then the perspective of an older woman kind of coming through because we know that even though her father was objecting to the war that she wrote this uh these odes, I guess, to the fallen soldiers, and she Mm -hmm. really seemed to kind of glorify in her own mind the the Civil War soldiers. But then she tells Quentin, when they're they're meeting that day, um, is it any wonder that heaven saw fit to let us lose? Because she says the men fighting for the South were men with valor and strength, but without pity or honor. Mm -hmm. So over time, she seems to have come to think of the quintessential Civil War soldier as being like a Thomas Sutpen and not yeah. being like a, a man worthy of respect. And then the second thing I thought of in terms of her changing her perspective, you know, when she walked in to, basically she gets called out to the house at Sutpen's 100 that day when um, Henry shoots Charles Bond and she tries to go in the Minor house. spoiler alert. Yeah, well, I'm assuming all the way through that you have read this book before because we're going to just have to talk about what happens in the book, and, right?
0: And if you're reading it as we're talking about it, the, 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 that Henry kills Charles is, is not a big spoiler. That's really the, the question. One of the main questions of the novel is why did Henry yeah. kill Charles You Bond? find out
1: kind of early-ish that he actually killed right, him. Right, um, But yeah, so she gets caught out to the house because this tragic thing has happened, you know, and she tries to go in the house and... and Clytemnestra stops her, and she mm-hmm. says, "Don't you go up there, Rosa." And Rosa is so offended at being bossed by this slave and being called Rosa by the slave mm-hmm. instead of like Miss Coldfield, something mm-hmm. more appropriate. She she's very offended by that. She says, "Rosa to me to my face," and then Clytemnestra touches her, and that makes her even more indignant but then on the next page she says it seems to me like this is a later perspective as Mm -hmm. she's like thought about this for a very long time she says let flesh touch flesh and watch the fall of all the eggshell shibboleth of caste and color too so that's the first thing that she says that kind of makes her us question you know she when she touches Clytemnestra she starts to think you know what all those external things fell away and, you know, it was sort of more human to human. And then she says um, that there was a something holding them together, like a fierce, rigid umbilical cord twin-sistered to the fell darkness, which mm-hmm. had produced her. So she feels like a sister, like mm-hmm. a twin to mm-hmm. Clytemnestra. Um, and the fell darkness, which had produced her, I th- there's a a strain of imagery all the way through the novel about the the male principle being this principle of kind of um, lust and 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 potency and power to create pain and and evil um, and difficulty and it's like to some degree it almost feels like as women she and Judith and Clytemnestra have a, a connection that's kind of undeniable and un, almost unspoken but just like just like unbreakable because there's something about like the masculine power that's so Mm -hmm. aggressive and almost like menacing in this book. And I think she's just rethinking. She was glorifying these young men, you know, as a a young woman, but she seems to have become really soured on the holiday of like masculine kind of potency. Mm -hmm. And she really was like in love with Charles Bond in her mind. Like she never even saw him before, but just the concept of him, she said, It was like, instead of, usually she's talking about dust being in the air, you know, just like kind of leftover dead skin cells of people who aren't here anymore or something. But she talks about Charles Bond leaving glitter in the air. So he's so glamorous. And I think that she doesn't even seem to know the full story about Charles Bond that might have soured her on him Mm. more, I think. But she, as she gets older you know, seems to kind of grow as a person, which I don't think I appreciated as I started reading this book, that that was something that might happen with her.
0: And I think that's something just as, you know, for those of you that are listening and have not read this book through already or, or maybe reading it through again like Whitney did after a long uh, interval, Rosa, I think, is the, the character that becomes the most complex the, the more you read this Um I don't think the other characters don't become more complex, but I think that she is written off in a lot of the criticism as like a hysteric woman. Um, and, and I do think <laughs> she is quite mad. She is quite emphatic. She is a hard pill to swallow. Uh, but that being said... Why is she the way she is? I think is the first question that opens up this kind of multi-layered, like onion that is this novel, and that's why, when I was talking to Whitney this morning about this this episode, I said, you know, I think Rosa is a strong opening because you want to you want to hook people in immediately to a story about the Civil War, because at this point, you know, in uh, 1936, there have been many, many, many stories told about the Civil War, and probably the most famous story about the Civil War was Gone with the Wind, and it's published, the, the, the book is published the same year as Absalom Absalom. And so, you know, Faulkner is, is telling a story about the Civil War, but really I think he's telling a story about the, uh, the postbellum South, Um, and, And that's one of the big things that Quentin is questioning, why is she telling me this at first? And one of the things he says is, he says, it's because she wants it told, he thought, so that people whom she will never see and whose name she will never hear and who have never heard her name nor seen her face will read it and know why, know at last why God let us lose the war. And that's where he starts, but then he realizes, no, she's a poetess, she's a writer, she's, if she wants to write this story down, she will, but she, but he realizes he's telling her for, for yet another reason, and so, you know, I I think that that's, that's one of the questions, is why, why is she telling him this story, and we'll talk that, about that some with Quentin, Um, but in terms of the power of this story—it's—it's it's about a man, who in some ways represents the antebellum South, especially Mississippi, uh, which by the way I mentioned the forty-three years that she just hearkens again and again and again. So many times that you can't forget the number forty-three, but she says it's been forty-three years that she's—you know—since she's been spurned by by uh, Thomas Sutpen. And 43 years is also the length of time between Mississippi becoming a state and the Civil War starting. And so um, I think that's a really powerful thing. And another thing is, you know, four score and seven years ago um, is probably one of the most famous openings to a speech ever. Uh, But, you know, that's 87 years. Well, half of 87 years is about 43 years. So the time that Rosa... (coughs) has been, um, I don't have COVID, by the way, I'm just chewing gum and it's just, I'm swallowing it wrong. But the time that she has been alone by herself in this house in Jefferson, Mississippi, is analogous to the length of time Mississippi is a state before the Civil War and is, is half the life of America at the time of the Civil War. And so thinking of it in those terms I think is very important because Rosa is meant to be in my personal opinion mm-hmm. a stand-in for something. She is not a real person. This is not someone that William Faulkner is like I got I got to make sure I get her exactly right. Like she's she's clearly an imagined character based on characters that Faulkner surely knew. But this is this is what makes Faulkner so compelling as a writer is he does just invent these stories and he's inventing a story within the history of the Civil War. And And I think that that's something that's really compelling to me as a writer and as a reader um, and just a fan of art is when you take something that is either artificial or, exaggerated or or just invented based on reality and you set it within reality you know this is happening within Mississippi and within the Civil War and after after the Civil War and and so there's this element of Rosa is completely real but I think she she's also indicative of like I said the whole generation of women that, that that came up you know, and, and would have been a coming of age right when all their suitors and bows <laughs> got killed in the Civil War, and and those women stayed along a, long, a long, stayed alive a long time, holding on to those ghosts because they didn't get to have those men as husbands, and they didn't get to have children, and they get you know here's Rosa, she's a you know sixty whatever year old, sixty four year old woman. Who's, who's never had sex, you know, and, and, and you know, we would use a word like spinster, you know, to describe her, but that's really not, you know, she's not someone that's, that's sitting and, and just kind of like calmly living out her life. She's someone that I think is really raging against the dying light uh, that is everything that's happened in her world, uh, both personal and kind of universal in the South. But one of the things I want to bring up about Rosa is I think Rosa is meant to represent the the, the the Reconstruction South and that she is um, affected by the Civil War irreparably and um, she she has to keep looking back. I mean, really, from 1865 till 1910, there was not a lot of forward-looking in the South from, from the history that I know of it because there's so much of this lost cause mythology of... The South was was righteous, and the South was, um, you know, uh, would have won if you know Stonewall Jackson hadn't gotten killed, and et cetera, et cetera. And so, there's this element of Rosa has got this. Sh- she seems to represent something much bigger than herself that is so full of life, uh, but is but that life is so toxic because it is it is re- reacting to something that she had no control over. And, you know, I think what she is trying to pass on to Quentin is that sense of do not let your generation move on because this is something that did irreparable harm to our society and did irreparable harm to your your family. You know, it's like it's not just people that lived in the same region as Quentin. It's like his dad was his, his granddad was General Compson. And so there's just this sense of, Families were just torn apart, the land was ravaged, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you know, f- for the sake of ending slavery, I think it's worth it. But at the same time, it's something that I think we cannot in the 21st century fathom what a civil war would do to our lives. A One, one that lasted four years, you know, and one that was fought mainly in our region of the country, wherever that is that you're listening. Um, it, it just would it would change life as much as coronavirus changed life for us when it hit. I mean, eventually, I I do not suspect that coronavirus will be, you know, haunting us five, ten years later, whereas the Civil War is haunting the South, I think, even till today.
1: I can see what you mean about her representing, like, this inability of the South to— Reinvent itself and start over and and keep kind of maturing because she just sort of got frozen, you know, when the war, mm-hmm. when the war ended, um, and when when I guess when Thomas Upton came back, um, and she was insulted again. In fact, there's a moment in the book where it said I I, I can't remember if it's Rosa who actually says it, but um, says that she felt like sometimes men would come back from the civil war and their wife or their sister or someone would have been raped by like a, a union soldier would have been like violated in his absence. And because he just felt so like helpless that he got angry with and rejected the wife or the sister, you know, even though it wasn't her fault that like people started to feel that way about the South itself. Like they, they were sort of like angry and frustrated with it. Um, and she is described as being a fetus several yeah. times. It's like her life was so kind of sheltered away, and she never really had a childhood, never really developed and grew. And, you know, I think this idea of just not being able to mature and move forward mm-hmm. kind of fits that in an interesting way. Um, But I thought a lot about power when I was reading the Rosa parts, and, you know, she describes... Thomas is being so so powerful, so potent. He can't die in the Civil War. He seems to always be impregnating people or threatening to, you know, like that sort of thing. And she, in some ways, seems impotent, right? She seems like yeah. fairly powerless. Yeah. Um, and we, you and I, have talked about this concept of for a woman, like the book even says, um, I think maybe Jason Thompson says it for a, a woman like Judith, virginity is a is power up until a certain point Um, because, you know, it makes you a valuable commodity, which whether that constitutes power or not, I don't know, but in their society, that was a form of power for a young woman is to have your virginity intact. When you get past a certain age, like Rosa is, your virginity becomes pitiful to people, right? It becomes a sign that you're kind of discarded by society. But Rosa does have her moments where she seems powerful yeah. Um, for example, we're told very early on that she's basically, I don't want to say resurrecting, but sort of almost like like conjuring the spirit of Thomas Uppen through her voice. So it's like he's haunting her voice, and yeah. she's in control of it. Like mm-hmm. She gets to bring him back when she speaks, and he becomes so real to, to Quentin. Mm-hmm. Other times that she strikes me as powerful are when she barges her way into the house twice, despite the fact that Clyde Nestor tries to stop her. Yeah. That's very parallel to how there's this... they. The criticism calls it a primal scene sometimes, Mm -hmm. which is very like Freudian. But this traumatic thing that set the course of Thomas Upman's life when he was not allowed into the front door of this plantation house, a slave blocked him out. And he just has this moment of epiphany that a slave can tell him what to do. A slave can have better clothes than him, that he's like poor white trash, right? And that he has to do something about that. And that's kind of the the purpose of the whole rest of his life. Well, when Rosa shows up at, you know, the house and Clyde and Nestor tells her in two different occasions, get out, Mm -hmm. don't come in. She's like, oh, I'm going in. And she does. She pushes her way in. Kind of with Judas' help, you know, the first time. But the second time she's got like a hatchet and she's just like ready to do whatever she's got to do to get in the house. She kind of... Goes from being a narrator of the past to making the story happen, like being the author yeah. of the story at the end.
0: Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because that was, was kind of where I wanted to, you know, close things down. Was this sense of is Rosa Coldfield the, you know, the, the most compelling character in this in this novel? Um, because, like you said, she becomes in some ways the protagonist in that moment. I mean, she's there to solve a mystery. Um, now, the, 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 the impressiveness of the mystery to me is, it's a little lacking, because to me, it's pretty obvious, and she's like, something is out in that house. <laughs> it's like, oh, I wonder what it could be, Rosa. I mean, it's <laughs> clearly Henry, but... Um,
1: yeah, it wasn't exactly exciting like the revelation of it but it yes. was something something was compelling about the fact that she just barged into the physical space instead of living in the like mental yes past forever and,
0: and that idea of she has a hatchet with her it's like well is she there to bury the hatchet or is she there with an axe to grind um and i think you know faulkner you know i th- i would like to think he chose that that uh particular weapon or or means of entering a house uh intentionally because you could see it both those ways you could see it as she's there to to um be at an armistice as she she uses uh that word talking about sutpen um she's either there to make peace with the past or she is there to you know sharpen the axe so that she can be more sharp about the past um and, and I think that that's, you know, that's an interesting ending for the novel because really uh, it's such an odd novel. I mean, it's so, it's so disjointed and it's so all over the place in history and years and trying to follow who's speaking and who's, who's listening to whom and when is this happening. And it's, it's, it's a challenging, well, it's a very challenging novel to read. But that being said... I think Rosa is the perfect character to begin with and to, you know, not quite end with because it does end with Shreve and Quentin. But she's I think she's a very powerful character because she just has got so much energy. And, you know, for a woman of her age to want to take, you know, take a chance and go out to a haunted house, you know, Everybody else is afraid to even walk on the property of. Um, it shows that she's got this bravery um, that I think you know she had even as a as a as a younger person. But it's like she got more emboldened over life, and I think that's part of why the critics that read this novel and are like, "Oh, Rosa's not interesting because she's so shrill and she's so." Uh, you know, she's just a woman scorned, and that's that's boring. It's like, well, no, that's that's pretty interesting to me uh, because w- you know, learning the depths of why she is the way she is helps me understand her. Um, I don't think it's an I don't think she's an easy character to love, but I think she's an easy character to just be spellbound by. And and I think Quentin is. I I don't think she's as spellbinding to us, but uh, what's impressive about her as a character is that. Uh, Shreve keeps calling her aunt Rosa and Quentin keeps correcting him and saying no miss Rosa cuz Shreve is just conf- you know making a cl- confluence of uh Rosa is Quentin's aunt because why on earth would he know all this about her if he wasn't related to her well Shreve's never been <laughs> Shreve's never been to Jefferson Mississippi or or you know Waynesboro Georgia or any other small town Madisonville Tennessee where my grandmother's from Um, small towns you just know people and uh, the smaller the town the more people you know and the more you know about them and and Shreve does not understand that Rosa is is just a narrator to Quentin I think he thinks he you know there's a there's a familial connection to them but in reality Shreve actually is accurate she is Aunt Rosa she's Henry and Judith's aunt and so there's this element of even though he's wrong in Quentin's eyes, he's accurate in the, the facts of the novel. And I think that's part of what makes this such a, a rich thing to, to read and think about is that's how history works. Sometimes you have to have a lot of distance from history to see something clearly. You know, I mean, I do not think people in the 1870s saw the reasons people fought the Civil War as clearly as people see now. In some respects, because we have so much uh, advantage of time and hindsight, whereas they were looking through emotion and looking through grief. Um, but in some ways, they saw it you know, clear as day and we, we, we see it as a painting. And, and that's something that I think um, we'll talk about more with the other characters. Uh, but but to me, this novel and, and we'll kind of end it with this point, And Whitney can kind of chime in with whatever she feels like saying about it. I wrote down in my, in my notes, this is a novel about portraiture. And some of these portraits are self-portraits, and some of them are portraits of others. And, and you know when you think about learning about history, sometimes you learn about history just by seeing a painting of somebody. And I think Rosa is the only one that has the authority, because she was an eyewitness, to give a self-portrait of herself and of her time, and of the people involved in her life, including Sutpen. Um, and so there's this element of she's, she's, she's giving Quentin, and she's giving us, by extension as the readers, this picture of herself, and it is not very flattering at times, but I think it's it, it's as accurate a self-portrait as someone could paint, and yet it takes... Jason Compson and Quentin and Shreve to help round out, you know, the the other angles of Rosa Caulfield to get a, a fully three-dimensional portrait of her for us to understand her as a character?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I guess a final thing I was thinking about in terms of Rosa, um, so Quentin and Shreve are kind of... Uh, talking through this story while Jason Thompson's letter is sitting on the table yes, between them. Yes. And it, they're not even reading the letter anymore. It's just sitting there for the longest time uh, and kind of inspiring them a bit. But the the letter, some, some portion of the letter is included on the second to last page. And Jason Thompson, who, I mean, he's really, his attitude toward women is very, like he really commodifies them and kind of, minimizes their complexity many times i think um but he says that he hopes now that rosa is dead that she can gain that place or born where the objects of the outrage and of the commiseration are no longer ghosts but actual people to be actual recipients of the hatred or pity um i think that was i thought it was pretty fascinating just this concept that her 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 heaven he thinks would be to get to be alive with all those people again because she's been kind of like a ghost with all those people for all these years and yes. she could apply her pity apply her hatred like her like fully express her emotions to the people who actually kind of deserve the brunt of them instead of just some poor like victim like Quentin who doesn't really have anything to do with it so i think that's an interesting concept um you know just that like if she if her death does kind of let her go do that in theory it could kind of set Quentin free from having to deal with it all but it it doesn't seem like Quentin feels that way he feels like he at the end he has a sense of responsibility that he needs to cling to his um you know kind of loyalty and 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 love for the south even when it hurts him and if she does represent the reconstructed South or reconstructing South, you mm-hmm. know her death might be a sign that there could be some moving on and some transformation yeah. and some growth, and that she could go live with the dead, and you know they yeah. could all have their strong tragic emotions together. Um, but Quentin doesn't seem at all free from, Mm-mm. and we can we know later. I mean. His mind is so plagued by this and other things, you know, involving his own family, right. but just by, by family and heritage and his roots and his city and all that history. His mind is so plagued he can't get free from it. And maybe Faulkner is suggesting, the futility, of living in the past completely when I mean, there's yeah. an extent to which you can't escape it. Yeah. But you, maybe you should try. I don't know.
0: Well, and I wrote that down in one of these articles. Let me find it. Basically, I was, I was contrasting the fire that destroys Sutpen's hundred at the end of the novel with the concept of Rosa basically, like, holding the past in front of herself and everyone. Um, you know, the, the whole novel. And I'm going to find it. You just, said the fire
1: of the present destroys the...
0: Yes. Monument
1: the, of the past that's, or something like
0: that. Okay, here we go. I'm finding it. Uh, the, the letter, I'm glad that you, that you brought that up because I really wanted to talk about that. Like, it, you know, I guess the thing is, is Rosa Colfield's dead. She died after a coma. Um, and, and that's that's the thing, is that she's been dead this whole novel, and yet she's the most, I think she's the most alive character in the novel. And so even though she has just passed away in the timing of 1910... She is kept alive by Quentin and Shreve and Mr. Compson. Yeah, I said consuming the present with the past. That's what that's what Rosa does. But then the fire that Clyde starts, to, you know, to 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 burn down Suttons Hundred, the home, is consuming the past with the present. And so when when Rosa dies now, like Whitney was saying, there's there's some room to move forward that some of the anchor has been cut from the present and it can maybe move you know move into the 20th century and and the south can can develop a new identity um but i think that you know rosa is just such a she's such a powerful figure in this novel not because she has so much power in her own lifetime but at the end of her life she's the most powerful and and the way that she keeps that power going is is handing it over to Shreve, well to, to Quentin and, and to Shreve by extension, And they you know they, they keep this story alive and, the, and they um, explore it more in their, own, in their own narration. And I think that that's, that's really what she does, you know, in terms of like reenacting the past. It's like, well, she, she was there to say what it was like. And they can only presume what it was like. But that's, you know, Civil War reenactments are still going on now. There's just this sense of wanting to go backward and and feel authentically in the past. And whether that's going back to the 1990s, which is my favorite thing to do, or whether that's going back to 1862 or 63, you know, this sense of pretending you're in the Civil War. Well, you know... (laughs) it's all fun and games until you're actually in a war. And the thing about it is Rosa seems to be a veteran of the Civil War uh, in a different way than, you know, S- Sutpen was or Charles and and, and Henry are, um, or, or even her dad, who was a veteran, um, you know, he was a, a conscientious objector. So he, he served by not serving. Um, and there's this sense of, you know, I think, I think uh, Rosa really wants to—I t- think she wants to honor the goodness of her family and and distance herself from the evil that was brought into her family. And that's, that's how the South, after the Civil War, wanted to look at the South before the Civil War. They wanted to distance themselves from the reasons that they got into the war, and they wanted to honor and praise, and, and t- even to this day, I think— look look up to as something that's that's a paragon of uh virtue and civility and 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 decency and and you know as we'll talk about with Thomas Upin <laughs> the reality is different than the myth, so uh that's where we'll probably pick up next time with with old t s uh but we'll look forward to to talking more with you as you listen with us and thank you for listening to this. A nice, succinct hour and 12-minute long discussion on Rosa Coldfield. We'll talk to you next time. This is Summer Reading with the Deals. Bye-bye.